You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. Today I'm speaking with Paul Curry, uh, who, if you're not familiar with his work, in the uh, the write-up for this episode, I've described him as a sweaty, bearded turbo clown. I think that's fair. Uh, I don't think Paul would be uh, <laughs> adverse to being described like that. Um, I saw his show, as, you, as you'll hear, I think I've referred to it in this interview, I saw Paul's show on the last night of Edinburgh this year with a couple of uh, street clown friends of mine, and we were all absolutely gobsmacked at how original it was, uh, and, and particularly original with um, uh, whilst using some of the things that we're familiar with from clowning to find new ways of using familiar things. Um, it was really original. It was incredibly heartfelt and evocative, and the audience were just going nuts. Um, so if you haven't seen his stuff, ordinarily I'd tell you to revise people. I don't know that it's possible to have a bit of revision on Paul without seeing his stuff live. I'm sure that uh, uh, any kind of bootleg gig videos you might find won't do it justice. But um, you might needle around. Paul's website is mrpaulcurry.com. Maybe he's got some video stuff up there. Uh, so without further ado, I really enjoyed talking to Paul Curry. I remember meeting you at Glastonbury a few years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you'd just come off from doing a street show. Yeah. And I was about to go on and, and do one. It was. Pro- it may even have been the last street show I ever did because... I, I quit really? the street years ago. Do you not do it anymore? No, no, I don't do it anymore. Oh, I didn't know um, that. But uh, I used to, even when I'd retired, I would come back and do Glastonbury every year because I just would do it to get in. And, I remember and stand, I remember watching you specifically, though, that, that time because somebody just before you went on, one of the uh, one of the tech team at, at the outside stage that we were performing at said that you did stand-up. Yeah. So I specifically stayed and went, oh, okay. Something kind of went off in my head and went, oh, Right, all right. Let's okay. see. So he does stand up and does street theater as well. I, I I thought you were great. Actually, I watched your show. Thank you very much. I love the street I, show. Thanks, man. I, I enjoyed I it, did. particularly at Glastonbury. I think when I was doing street shows at Glastonbury, I like I couldn't remember half my show. I'd taken all of the skills out of it. I would spend forty minutes getting changed whilst talking to them. But that's and the then best a street. On the rope at the end. Yeah, I, I agree. That's the best street theater, though. Well, let's it's, let's talk about let's talk right. about this before we get proper stuck yeah. into you and where you are now. I'm yeah. really excited to have someone because I remember meeting you and going, "Holy shit, there's another one!" Yeah, what yeah, is yeah. It? It's like you. That's kind of what I thought. You <laughs> Pete Dobbing and Asher. That's yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's how I felt whenever I first saw Doctor Brown. Yeah. Holy shit, there's another one. Yeah. I thought I was the only one doing what he was doing. 
And what then whenever I saw Sam Simmons as well too, I was like, oh my God. Yes. There's another one. Who else is in that gang? Spencer? Spencer's in that gang. I would even, uh, Boy With The Tape In His Face as well. Because the first time I ever did the Stand Comedy Club in 2009... Like, um, this might sound pretentious, <laughs> but everybody lost their shit in the comedy club and in, in the comedy club that night because they'd never seen anything like what I what I'd done. Which is pretty much I was just doing clowning. I was just coming in and bringing a bit of clowning, a bit of Andy Kaufman, a little bit of Vic Reeves, a bit of, mm-hmm. kind of mishmash of and Steve Martin and peppering it. And that's what I do. And I did it on stage in the in the Stan Comedy Club. They lost their shit. All the local comedians, sorry, the audience were baffled as they should <laughs> as they should be. When I say they lost their shit, I meant the comedians that's lost a their shit. Detail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the other comedians lost their shit. They were in, they were like, uh, yeah, it was it. It was great. And the stand immediately were... And that was at the Red Raw. Yep. So it was just me doing Red Raw. So the stand immediately got in contact with me, invited me straight back, which was great. Red Raw is the new act. Yeah, it was the new... Okay. the new, uh, Yeah, the new the new act night. And, uh, like, I made no money. I, I paid for my flights to go over to do that. And uh, so I was making a loss that night anyway, as as you do with comedy all the time. Um, uh, but and then, but then the thing is, a week later, I got a call from one of these comedians that I, I became really close friends with and I have known ever since. Contacted me and said, "Holy shit, another comedian turned up tonight, and he's like doing similar stuff to what you're doing, but he's got like tape on his face." <laughs> and this was whenever he was just starting. Yeah, he was just uh, oh, what's it? I forgot his name. What's his Sam. name? Sam. Sam Wills. Uh, yes, Sam Wills. And. Uh, Sam had just started out. So this was Sam's first little dip in his toe into comedy clubs around the circuit. He was basically yeah. doing a, a, a circuit. I later on then found out that Sam had this like five year plan that he mm-hmm. um, like very much completed and then went even further beyond that, as we all know. Um, but that was his first uh, foray into stand uh, stand up comedy clubs. And I was like, shit. Oh my god! And I thought this is great, but also who the, who the freaking hell is this guy? Yeah. Then I found out from other street performer friends who he was, but um, but at the time, whenever I first started, I was doing very silent kind of um, similar stuff. But I, I I was obviously doing a bit of talking in between. Um, but yeah, it was amazing actually for me to know that there was there seemed to be this new wave of clowning coming into comedy clubs, like Doctor Brown, like. Sam Simmons, like, you know, there was this new wave of, um, I guess, alternative absurdism, if you want to give it something of a title. Yeah, so that excited me. Do you do you have any theories as to where it comes from or why it's happening now? It's because, uh, yeah, loads. Um, because stand-up comedy is clowning. It's a very base form of clowning. It's clowning stripped back. I mean, for me, I mean, I've done my, I did my research over the years and uh, found out that some of the first clowning, or the first stand-up, came from the traveling circuses, uh, Barnum and Bailey's with a guy called Dan Rice. Okay. Don't know if you've ever heard of him. I haven't heard anybody. Okay. So Dan, so, you know, um, you know, the image, you know, the image of, uh, uncle Sam Mm -hmm. that's based on the clown Dan Rice. Okay. He wore the American flag as a suit, which was extremely controversial at the time. Um, a satirist, a famous satirist, but he was a clown first and foremost in the circus and the traveling circuses, uh, in the Dust Bowl era of America. But then he was the first clown to actually start talking to the audience and addressing an entire audience. And that is the theory of where modern stand up came from was okay. Dan Rice is almost like the, uh, 
the germ. He's the he's the seed that sort of that spawned Patient that. Zero. Obviously, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Obviously, you know, comedy's been around for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years. Blah blah blah. But the the concept of one person addressing an entire audi- a huge audience, an an auditorium, so to speak, for you know. 30 to 40 to 50 an hour um, kind of came from that. Okay. Supposedly. I mean, okay. I've read books on it and stuff like that. And that, fa- you know, because it just fascinates me where these where it came from, the concept, this concept of one person standing on a stage just is, talking. Is it happening? I mean, I think of the people we've named thus far, they're all the people that are, that are kind of the the weird i don't even know what to call do you do you want to call that group clowns or uh no because it's still no because it's still stand up it's still it's you know you still it's um absurdist i guess absurdist um it's still comedy it still comes under the uh, the guise of comedy i mean the way i like to describe it is the way i like to explain it is that um comedy is still young it's still very, very young, and it's it's got many, many genres, just like music. But music, uh, people know what kind of music they like. So I, I like to give this example a lot whenever I'm doing stand up, especially if I spot someone in the crowd who is not getting my stuff, but everybody else is. Is that they're they're like a Kenny Rogers fan at a Napalm Death gig. Mm-hmm. They've basically said yes to go and see some music. Someone said, "Hey, do you want to go and see some music?" They went, "Yeah, cool, music. I love music." Yeah, they've just went into the gig and they haven't asked what kind of music it is, and they're just standing there. Yet they're watching people on stage playing instruments, playing the guitar, but just not the way they like to hear it played it's up too loud it's distorted whatever but it's still an instrument um and it's the same with comedy for me they they should ask what kind of comedy they're going to see people just ply in and they have this you know there's this uh, sort of universal idea of oh if it's funny if it's funny it's funny if it is funny it is going to be funny that's you know that's just not true it's simply not true because everybody's got different tastes yes just the way you have with music it occurs to me there may be people listening to this who have not seen you and we have yet to kind of totally flesh out the sort mm. of thing it is that you do. Yeah. So how about rather than I hate saying to people, so what, what sort of thing do you do? I'll tell you what I remember from your show that I saw this year. Yeah. I saw, I saw Release the Baboons. Yes. Uh, I think I saw Re-Release the Baboons. Oh, yeah, yeah, And yeah. I saw uh, your show this year, which you pronounce like this. Milk. Good. I've been pronouncing it right. I'm glad That's to right. see that. That's right. And I saw it with a bunch of street clowns on, oh, the, right. on the last night. Right, okay. Edinburgh, and it was the perfect way to end the festival. Oh, thank they, you. They agreed as well. Oh, it was fun. So I saw it a kind of like sweaty, shouty, <laughs> turbo clowning, kind of getting people involved and, and dirty. Yeah. And the bits, the standout bits, the bits I remember most immediately, the, the image for me was the the tiny action man version of yourself on a pole being flown over the heads of the audience while people shot party poppers poppers at the conclusion of the show which was just a (laughs) hundred times more magical than that description (laughs) even can do it justice Uh, you got people on stage buttering an ironing board Uh, I remember there was a thing about a brick uh, oh, I yeah. remember yeah. And, and the, the cornflakes bit you're eating a bowl of cornflakes oh, yeah. whilst having your heart broken and yeah. they're all falling out of your mouth and you're re-eating them yeah. so I, we can talk about some of those bits and where they came from and where they're sure. going sure. I'd, I'd be fascinated to do that but I just kind of wanted to flag that up in terms of people listening to this episode that's the territory yeah 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 it's play it's just play it's really all it is um, a lot of the stuff that I do on stage that you saw on that show I would do with kids 
I do it with families on the street, little kids, stuff like that. Some of it, obviously not. Some of the more kind of, you know, profane stuff and, and uh, more sexualized stuff, I w- obviously not. But the rest of it, the majority of the show, I, I do on the street. Like, they eat the cornflakes, having a breakdown. It's basically a man having a breakdown at breakfast is, is the concept of that. And I've done it on the streets, and it's just me sitting silently, gently beginning to eat a bowl of cornflakes to the theme tune of... Arthur, um, Christopher Cross singing, uh, what is it, When You Get Caught Between the Moon and New York City. But it's such a sad song. And then eventually I just become more and more emotional. But I've done that in front of kids who absolutely lose their shit over it. They love it because it's just an adult spitting cornflakes everywhere. And then behind them, you've got the parents who are looking at me, some of them horrified that this is happening. But most of them come up. I've had parents coming up to me afterwards and saying, I know exactly where you were in your head (laughs) because of their kids because they have kids and because they go to those moments of just like despair kind of they could relate to the despair they could also relate to the you know the madness of it as well too keeping going as a parent i relate to that kind of (laughs) i can't go on i must go on quality to it yeah like i've just got to keep yeah just got to keep going it's got to keep going (laughs) the same cornflakes yeah so i mean it's lovely that it sort of people take different things from it you know uh you know, yeah, so it's nice, that, that even that piece, you know, but I love doing that on on the street. So can you tell us then, you, did you start as a puppeteer? Were you doing street shows before you were doing puppetry? Uh, what, what was the, what was the, the instant? Well, I, did the, I did theatre years ago, years okay. and years ago. I studied theatre for three years. Well, uh, performing arts, sorry, it wasn't theatre. I did performing arts for was three. Was that in Northern Ireland? It was in Northern Ireland, Belfast, yeah, and, and that was whenever I first, so that was with college, and I was only about 17, so I did. Um, yeah, I went straight from school to do performing arts for three years. And what what ideas did you have about what that course was going to be? What did you what excited Absolutely you? Absolutely, the fact that I didn't have to go and get a job, and that I uh, could play. I, I play music. And I play in bands. I've been in a lot of bands, and still am. I still play um, guitar and sing and, and write songs and stuff in bands. So uh, the audition to get into this course was that. Um, you had to perform a monologue or sing a song and I just thought yeah cool I've got a few songs kicking around and I got onto the course and then um, it had music it had acting it had stage production uh, stage design it was one of these performing arts courses you, you basically got to dip your finger into all sorts of parts of the performing world I guess and uh, and that was whenever I first tried I remember I tried a little bit of stand up all of about five minutes, I got on stage and sort of um, tried stuff uh, during lunchtime on the on the stage, in the can in the canteen of the college, and uh, just it was horrible. Did you was that a gig that you put on? No, you no, said, no, no. I literally this. we were we were on we we were just fanning around because we were just uh, hyperactive kind of. Um, Teenage, teenage. Um, so you just stood on a table and said, "Everyone pay attention." Yeah, to yeah. It's for everybody was doing a little turn. There was some dancers doing a bit, and then I got up to try and do a bit of stand up. So I remember that was my first foray into like standing with a microphone on a stage, making and, stuff up. Yeah, just sort of improvising. I think I did maybe like vaguely try to do a goon sketch or something. Um, okay, who was your idea of stand up comedy at that point? Uh, well, whenever I used to hang out with my friends in my teens, I would. It was always Python. We would always uh, regurgitate Python sketches and stuff like that. And um, whenever I grew up, when I was really small, though, I used to love the anarchy of 
<laughs> Cannon and Ball. <laughs> <laughs> Friggin' loved Tom, uh, Bobby Ball. Loved Bobby Ball's that's aggression. A, that's a first appearance on the podcast for Cannon and Ball. There you go. I, hey. I've, I've met them. They knocked me out of uh, a competition. <laughs> they did. <laughs> did they? Bobby, one of the best bits of that awful process was Bobby Ball going, I like you. I, I like you. He told me he yeah, liked yeah. about 40 times. <laughs> well, <laughs> nice <brilliant. guy. laughs> So I always remember pissing myself with my dad watching the watching them. Uh, and I don't remember their act. What kind of thing did they? do? It was just that they were a double act. There were this, you know, they were they were the knockoff kind of versions of like that, that came around in the eighties. Whenever I was younger in the early eighties, like I was born in seventy four, so I kind of grew up with that. Yeah, so early eighties. So you had the knockoff um, because Eric Morgan and Ernie Wise were obviously getting a certain age. Then obviously. TV producers looking back now I realise TV producers like well, we need the next uh, friggin okay. Markham and Wise get who we got and they had uh, what we had Little and Large and uh, yes. Cannon and Ball They've and always- then Hale and Pace and all these like kind of knockoff versions where they were desperately trying to desperately trying to find the next Morecambe and Wise to fill that gap because they knew they were coming to an end um but uh, yeah, Bobby Ball particularly appealed to me the anarchy of his his aggression to Tommy Cannon, him grabbing him, the two of them grabbing each other, and him just being frustrated all the time, and then also Michael Barrymore, <laughs> who used to go on. This is a safe and I'm talking. Space of, I'm, you can talk about. I know. Michael I know. It's a safe space. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, early. I'm talking like early Barrymore. If you ever see him on the Royal Variety shows and stuff like that, the energy of the guy was unreal i mean he was like and i guess that's what he was going for but he was like um john cleese on acid yeah so that sort of level of comedy and then of course the young ones and stuff like that as well too yeah uh, later on whenever i got a bit older and then i got into the young ones so i guess like harking back to what you were saying like whenever watching my show that it was very sweaty and shouty and stuff like that i mean i've always been drawn to that like the young ones the aggression that's within them. did you watch the dangerous brothers oh yeah yeah God, I yeah, think that yeah. was part of my route into street performing was me and my mate Noel oh, yeah. regurgitating Dangerous Brothers. Yeah, which yeah, is I Rick Mail and Adrian Edmondson. Yep. As Lord Richard. I did Dangerous. that a little bit with a friend of mine as well, too, from London, who actually looked very like uh, Ed Edmondson, the okay. two of us, and I kind of wanted to be, um, yeah, Rick Mail. Um, but yeah, we, we did similar stuff as well, too. We kind of wanted to do that Dangerous Brothers thing vibe. Yeah. 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 And, so what, what and are, that's actually how I kind of got into street performing as well, weirdly enough. Yeah. It was another guy, Steve Bamford, who uh, still lives in Belfast. But we did little bits of, actually, it was um, Punch and Judy. The two of us used to do a Punch and Judy show together, but we kind of, we would do it, Punch and Judy via the Dangerous Brothers, like what, yeah, what yeah. it would be like if they were doing it. So we would dress up and come out the front of the booth and we had all, we had all the puppets and we had the puppet booth that we got a land of off a friend of ours. But we thought, yeah, we're going to, we're going to kind of bring punk to Punch and Judy, you know, punk, punk and Judy. Sorry, that's terrible. Um, but yeah, that's um, not something I would have anticipated and it completely makes sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Punch, Punch and Judy. Yeah. Tell me about what attracted anyway. you to that energy and that anger those kind of like the bobby ball thing there is certain you know there's there's kind of violence it's slapstick violence but i think what what the dangerous brothers used i guess to do it's was, it, it was it had an edge yeah like it was slapstick violence where you could probably actually get hurt yeah quite often. yeah yeah and what was was there something that you were kind of going 
towards in that or was there something you were going away from for i'll tell you an example of what i mean for me it was the anarchy because i went to a very regimented school and i hated it and so probably what really appealed mm. was grown-ups going you don't have to be like that. yeah yeah oh, totally swear and shout and all yeah the absolutely of course that's that but that is the appeal in it isn't it really you know, as a teenager and then you're watching these older especially python for god's sake i mean they all look like teachers anyway they all look like yeah. sort of boring geography teachers who then yeah, just go yeah that's a really good point they all look so friggin boring but that yes. was the appeal because they were so crazy mental and then of course they were very posh as well but they were mental and especially Cleese. Cleese was my favorite Cleese, and this is maybe where the germ of uh, a lot of my comedy comes from is that moment where Cleese loses his shit so well he goes from complete clam cam to absolutely losing his shit and obviously that comes across in faulty towers so often and that i loved that i loved that that extreme dip in uh personality within one person you know that being super calm and then just losing his shit banging his head against walls and then suddenly complete calm he's fine and that always appealed to me and then that yeah that sort of ju- yeah, not juxtaposition but the, the non-sequitur of that mm-hmm. you're kind of like what the hell's going on inside that person's head what is going on in there and I kind of wanted to be able to put that across because you knew you knew it was an act but like how do I get to that level of madness how do I get to that level of madness to look that crazy as to be as crazy as that person <laughs> So this is Paul. I think you can, you know, whether you can see him or not, or whether you've seen the picture accompanying this episode or not, that sounds like the voice of a sweaty bearded turbo clown, surely. Um, There's lots more coming from Paul shortly. He's uh, someone, again, I find this with clowns. I mentioned Seymour Mace later in the show. I think um, people who have got experience of clowning are that much more liable to open up. There we go. That's a, a non-scientific sweeping generalisation. Um, and I feel that we get quite early, whenever I talk to people who are used to kind of living in, and as clowns would have it, living in the shit. Like, do you know what I mean? Living uh, and performing in a place of uh, failure, of acceptance, of accepting one's own failure, that sort of thing. Um you know, quite deliberately, and I, I, I think, as I say in, in this episode, it's uh, that is a skill I find very, very difficult to do. I've got uh, too much in the way of me uh, accepting and admitting my own failures to an audience. Um, but I think those performers are that much more inclined to come right out and talk about their mental health issues. I mean, we also know a good deal of stand-ups who do that too. Maybe my theory is bunk. But... Um, uh, I, uh, I really appreciate Paul being very uh, honest and candid as he was about uh, about his uh, struggles with mental health. And uh, I would remind all of you that, uh, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I should do some sort of uh, midway message here or maybe give you a number to phone. It's not going to be my phone number. <laughs> but if, uh, if you're listening to this, if you're struggling with any mental health uh, issues yourself, I, I remember there was a Samaritan's poster years ago, I always think of, uh, on the Tube in London, which was a very kind of yellow submarine, Beatles-esque uh, swirl of colours and stuff. And that, that kind of 70s uh, aesthetic. And it said, if for any reason your life doesn't feel exactly like this, call us. And I always remember thinking that was a, a beautiful way of putting it, because I think when I'm happy, I remember just how happy I am and just how wonderful everything is and then whenever I've struggled I have felt like that was reality and that's one of the hardest things I always uh, I always think the uh, the Red Dwarf episode better than life 
was secretly about depression. You remember that? The computer game that you didn't know you were playing? Um, whether it was about that or, or not, um, I think there is, when people struggle with mental health, I think the temptation is to think that that is what the world is really like, that that negative view of the world is, well, that's, I, I can see this clearly. And, uh, and actually, it's not. It's not. So if that's you, if, uh, if you're someone, <laughs> this is very BBC, if you're affected by the issues raised in this show, then talk to someone, talk to a professional, talk to a friend, Google yourself up some online cognitive behavioural therapy. You can do that. There's a couple of places somewhere in Australia, I think, that you can access that easily online. And, um, and uh, don't keep it yourself and don't think that that is the way the world is. More on that, perhaps, in the waffle that uh, follows this episode. But it's not all doom and gloom. Uh, of course, I'm really appreciative for Paul coming along. And thank you to Pete Dobbing and Daryl J. Carrington at Loco Comedy in Bristol for helping to arrange this one when Paul was performing at their excellent club. And by all accounts, it was a typically storming performance. So do check out mrpaulcurry.com. And I've had some lovely emails. You can email me info at comedianscomedian.com. Uh, people have been suggesting guests on the Facebook page. People have suggested so many guests on individual posts on the Facebook page, it's become almost unreadable. So uh, what we'll do from now on uh, is I will pin a post to the top of that page that says, feel free to suggest names under this one post, and it's a little bit more manageable. But thank you, everyone, that has some excellent suggestions there. Uh, I got an email from a listener called Joe, um, and uh, he talks about Edinburgh and uh, doing his own show in Edinburgh. And he says, speaking of Edinburgh moments your show wow as a total goldsmith noob and he spells that in the correct way n00b well done joe uh, i never saw any of the four previous shows is there any way of experiencing the first three in visual audio or script form that's an interesting idea i mean really the best bits of those of the first two shows are on princess uncle stew which you can download free from comedianscomedian.com uh, forward slash album and indeed forward slash shop two separate things you can get there um and the third one i got a copy of but there's some bits i'm not very happy about it in, in a couple of ways anyway back to joe he said i'd only seen an hour which i which felt like your ceremony stamping yourself as a comedy craft person well that's very kind of you joe but compared to what that felt like you saying this is what Stuart goldsmith comedy is about a Stuart Goldsmith Hour, he goes on, is an overwhelmingly positive, geeky extravaganza. I'm definitely going to catch it on tour. Well, Joe, thanks, man. And I'm very glad you brought up the tour. Uh, it is now on sale. If you want to come and see uh, what at least one listener describes as an overwhelmingly positive, geeky extravaganza, um, which is nice, man. I've never really been niche, but it's nice to think that people might consider me geeky. Um, as I've mentioned before, I was always what uh, Richard Sandling said he would have called at school. Uh, he said he'd have called me, uh, what was it? A double agent. Because <laughs> I could hang out with the cool kids. I got on with the geeks, but I didn't have to hang out with the geeks. So I could never really, truly be one of them. Thanks, Rich. <laughs> I think of that often. Um, but nonetheless, if you're interested in coming to see uh, the tour show, which has geeky bits and completely acceptable to a non-geek audience bits, uh, you can find out all of that information at comedianscomedian.com dot com forward slash tour and if you get that anything written there in green that says hey Stu fix this is a is a message to me because <laughs> it's it's not I'm advertising this now and this episode will go live on Monday by which time there will be no green ink left on that page I inverted commas promise um, but it, I mean it's, it's such a fun show to do you know what it's like trying to 
advertise your own work. You know, you've heard the uh, the guests on this show who are very happy to go, I'm amazing. I'm, I'm not one of those guys. I'm one of the 99% of us who go, oh yeah, you should, you should probably check it out. You'd like it. But uh, I can tell you how much I enjoyed doing it, which should be as much of a, a mark of quality as anything else. Bloody hell, I love doing this show. It's called Compare to What. It's not entirely about the baby. There's other jokes as well. Um, and uh, it's just loads of fun. And what I'm hoping, very much hoping to do, is uh, to repeat the the structure that we did last year of, uh, I can't guarantee this for every single venue, but uh, I, I think this is happening definitely by far the majority, is that I will do the whole show compared to what in an hour, uh, and then there'll be a break, and then uh, people who feel like that's them, that'll do, uh, they can leave, and anyone that wants to come back can see me do another 40 minutes or so of new stuff from Notes, none of which exists yet. And uh, and also we'll have a bit of a Q and A. We'll have a chat about the podcast. People came prepped with some really good questions last time, so let's do that again. And uh, you'll you can make an evening of it. So uh, comedianscomedian.com forward slash tour. I'm going to. I'm not even going to read out the places. You can find them on the website. And as soon as I've got them properly, every single one locked in. There's a couple of others to be added uh, that I will tell you about them on uh, on a future episode. So thank you, Joe. Thanks for your email. Thanks for bringing that up. And thanks for donating. Uh, thank you. Uh, to everyone that's donated I, I've got a few more recurring payments coming recently and they are always good to see if you'd like to go to comedianscomedian.com forward slash donate then you can support the show with a recurring monthly payment of one, two, five, or even ten pounds if you're an absolute legend I nearly said hammer legend there because I've got that in my head I can't be stealing other shows catchphrases um, but uh, you can, I think you can be a legend a myth or a super Beowulf something like that they're worth checking out anyway um, or you can pay me a one off thing of whatever you'd pay for a bottle of wine or you can if you're a kind of an ultra goldsmith you can pay me a pound a show i, I think i'm going to organize some sort of little pin badge <laughs> should i do this like a little prefect badge that says ultra uh, ultra goldsmith on it or something similar something better than that who knows um so thank you thank you everybody um apologies for the slightly rambling nature of this middle section i will explain why i'm rambling when we get to the waffle after the show thank you for listening please enjoy the second half of my conversation with mr paul curry a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. <laughs> What is attractive to you about inhib inhabiting that madness or letting that madness inhabit you? Okay, it's therapy, I guess. It's a form of therapy, I suppose. You know, because you've you you it 
yeah, it's like I get like primal scream therapy. You just you get it out of your system and you feel so much. I mean, I feel so much calmer after one of my shows, you? as you can imagine. Yeah, I would just go and sit in a coffee shop so quietly on my own and just chill out. I would. I can't do what a lot of other comedians do, which is just go out on the tear and, and go on the piss. Like, like this year, I spent the entire Edinburgh Fringe sober for the first time, actually. Didn't touch a drop. I would do my show. And you've seen it. It's high level, sweaty madness and then i would just go and sit on my own and not talk to anyone for about two hours in a coffee shop and just read or write in my diary or whatever so i'm actually quite a calm person anyway but uh yeah i guess we've got all those sides to us anyway you know everybody's got many different sides personalities but uh I don't know. I just always enjoyed that high level of energy, like a Robin Williams as well, too. I would watch when I was younger, Mork and Mindy, all that kind of madness, you know? Um, but, uh, but yeah, but I also suffer depression as well, too. I suffer from depression and, uh, I, I only found this out a couple of years ago. Well, this is taking a dip. Not, not at all. Um, this is, uh, so yeah, I've been in therapy for the last, um, previous like couple of years doing CBT yeah, very familiar with that cognitive yeah. behavioural yeah. therapy. And How um, you find that? great, really. I mean, great. It's all good. I mean, I recommend everybody. To, everybody should do therapy and talk about stuff as more often. I think this world would be a better place if people communicated yeah. a bit more and were a bit more yeah, honest I've, with each other. I've often thought we should be among the things they should teach in school, along with. <laughs> How to bleed a radiator? And, <laughs> do you know what I mean? How to what, how what to bleed your mind? <laughs> yeah, they should. How to teach let the people. pressure out of your head? They should yeah. pe- teach people to let the pressure out mm. of their heads. No one has a school-based conversation of just like this is what happiness is. And yeah. If you're because re- it's interesting what you said to me about um, I discovered I had depression because yeah. I think before you come to that realization of going oh. Like not everyone feels like this. Yeah, you know, you you just think, oh, this this is my view of the world. Yeah, oh, shit. Yeah, I totally. Don't X, y, totally. Z, you know, all those kind of and mood know. swings as well. I used to suffer really bad at mood swings, like big time. You know, I would go into a rage with someone or whatever. I would get really pissed off, and then all of a sudden, you know, I bur- I used to burn so many bridges with people with this like, um, yeah, sort of anger, and then I guess I channeled it into the comedy a little bit i guess so i mean it maybe came across that way but but uh, yeah yeah but i never knew it was depression and then yeah i went to therapy there a couple of years ago so it was and is that ongoing or is that something that you uh no i mean uh for the time being no i mean i've started it again to be honest um just because i I was having some relationship issues there recently so i I kind of uh, had a bit of a wobble so i'm I'm going back into therapy again just to chat about it a bit more but um it is good to talk to someone who like uh you know uh, a counselor who doesn't know you doesn't know any of your friends doesn't know you know just and you can just um offload yeah so much stuff i think the relationship with anger is really interesting to me because that's something i've only started to I don't, I, I'm not a very angry person. I don't mm. have a lot of issues with anger. Although, having said that, I've heard a, you know, one of the sort of CBT or similar th- kind of therapy types of theories is yeah. that depression is anger turned inwards. Yeah. And then I've certainly seen. What's self hatred, you know? Yeah. It's kind of like you're angry at something, but you don't want to hurt the people around you. So you turn the anger inwards and then you end mm. up being angry at yourself and hating yeah. yourself and those kind of things. Yeah. Well, what I learned was that it, it, it feeds off depression, feeds off 
self-destruct. So you, it feeds off negativity. So then you start looking for negativity to feed the depression. So then you start doing negative stuff. You start like, I mean, for me, it was just, I was, you know, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's turned into a massive therapy session for me. But yeah, it often just, does. You're very, yeah. I mean, you know, have we gone into the therapy session too quick? This is very, no, I, have, no, I'm slightly <laughs> under the usual. <laughs> oh, but maybe in, I, it's because I've only had two hours sleep. You well, see, that's yeah, why I, I don't want to take advantage of that. Okay, okay, right, I don't want you to say anything in a vulnerable position. Now, equally, this is the nature of no, uh, I this don't, I have no regrets. I would. Nothing, no, no, man. Uh, no, it's all good. Uh, yeah, but it, but um, I'm a lot calmer. Weirdly enough, like, like uh, getting back onto the um, uh, the conversation of comedy. But um, Kate Copstick came to see the show this year, and one of the most interesting things she said to me afterwards. And I mean, I know that you've seen it, and you said it was it was just yeah. I don't know. if she noticed a difference in my performance style this year in the show where she was like, I don't know what's happened to you, but like, have you been doing a lot of like, have you been taking a lot of my medication or have you just come off? No, that was it. She said, have you come off some heavy drugs or something? Because you, your whole persona on stage is calmer. It's much calmer, even though it's still crazy manic. Mm. You just have a, lot, a, a certain calmness to you, which is weird that she picked up on that. And a few other people did as well mention this. Mm. And I didn't say anything to them about the CBT that I've been in therapy. But there, there you go. It obviously, it did come across. And that enables you what to have a, what that, that observation is that there is more light and shade yeah. between the Oh, absolutely. The yeah, absolutely. I, I put that down to kind of you maturing more as a performer. Yeah. I, I kind of was like, I, I'm difficult to claim retrospectively I saw that too but I, I, yeah. I, I hadn't kind of made any psychological observations I've yeah. seen one of your shows before yeah. but I just felt that it was kind of a a more considered mm. like and now I'm going to hold on to it and now I'm going to let it go yeah yeah and I did I did do that purposely like even the bit with the teddy bear and stuff like that where I, I openly did honestly tell the audience why I did this piece with the teddy bear where I just, uh, the, the, what is it? Teddy bear's picnic music plays over the top of it. And I just hold a teddy bear looking at it and then start pulling sort of strained, upset faces. You know, I start getting emotional, not cry. I don't cry, but I just get very emotional and frown and start sort of getting worried. And, uh, and obviously that's up to interpretation. So then I come back to it and mention and ask the audience, do they want to know what the teddy bear bit was about? Because everybody thinks, oh God, has he gone like some weird, just some weird pedo thing? What the fucking hell? Where did he go with this in his head? And I want them to feel awkward. I want them to feel uncomfortable. That's the whole reason I do that bit of just standing holding the teddy bear with this teddy bear's picnic music playing louder and louder and louder and louder until it cuts. And then I tell them it's basically because I do have two younger brothers and they have two kids each and they're both married and I am the oldest of the three and I have no kids and I've always wanted to be a dad and and it is a big issue for men that they have that that instinct that that um reproductive instinct to be to be a dad to be you know nurturing to a child and um but yet within our society men are you know unfortunately deemed to be you know tough and not allowed to show emotions that way towards i mean you know you give the example that you know i can't walk past i couldn't walk past a um 
And it's happened to me before where you'd be looking at a kid in the street, like a baby or a little kid, and you'd be, you know, just look at them and give a smile. And like, I would feel warm. Like I would, I would think, I wish I had a kid. And that's what I'm thinking. But then you catch the eye of the parent and they're immediately looking at me, looking at their kid, and they just make an assumption that pervert. Mm-hmm. what the fuck is this? Why is he staring at my kid and immediately get on the defensive? Which is fine. I understand that. But but unfortunately, because of society, if that, if I was a woman doing that, I, they would clock your eye and they'd be like another smile. They'd smile back and they would be like, yeah, I know. Isn't it cute? The kid's cute. And oh, kids are cute. But whenever they see a guy doing that, uh, there's many, many issues there, you know, within our society that, that people have been brainwashed, basically. Yeah. Into, and I do, I, 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 I've got four nephews and niece uh two nephews and two nieces and i just adore them and i really yeah it's a it's uh yeah i really that was <laughs> a lot of my therapy was to do with that as well too of not having kids and being 42 and feeling like i'm kind of past it a little bit you know of, of um have i missed the boat because i now know that if i have kids at this age by the time they're in their 20s i'm going to be in my 60s you know and i'm going to be an old dad i'm gonna be one of these really old old dads if i ever do have kids you know all, all right mate <laughs> sorry i've got a baby yeah i know i know sorry <laughs> sorry <laughs> i'm sorry but no no i know exactly what you mean but you know what i, I mean i my, my my temptation as your friend is to go hey man come on that's totally fine at the same time I'm like as an interviewer i'm going and where's this going where is this thought where is this thought coming yeah, from? Yeah, yeah, going yeah. from i i totally i yeah. totally get where you're but coming that, from that's, and it's sorry. scary about the, the levels of energy that's the fear i have yeah is am i gonna have the energy yeah. to be running around with him when he's 10 i think we're okay though in our profession that we we are we you know we're coming from a different uh point of view as far Absolutely. as life goes we've got we i think we will be fine you know people like us in our job of being street performers comedians whatever we're very young at heart anyway Absolutely. And we always will be. Absolutely. And we don't have that retirement thing in our heads. You know, you just don't retire from what we do. You just keep doing it until you pop your clogs. And that's it. It's as simple as that. You just never, you never stop doing what we do. But um, yeah, back to the show, that that piece with the bear and that honesty was something that I, uh, that and there was a couple of other bits in, in the show that you saw this year, the f- f- milk show. Um where I wanted to be a lot more gentler and a lot more honest with the audience and not just do weird, absurd non-secretaires and, and still like, um, that made no sense. I wanted something. I wanted a chink in the armor to show the audience and then move on to something else and have them sitting there going, Jesus Christ, sort of like took us down into like reality there is like, whoa. And then off. How many shows have you made? Was Release the Baboons your first? No, it was the second one. The first one I did was um, the Sticky Bivouac, it was called, and it was 2009. I remember that because I remember thinking that photo doesn't look like you. No. I think. Oh, the one with the... What one's that? I'm not quite sure. Or maybe you've got a particular promo photo. Oh, is it the one with the duck? I I saw it and I kind of was like, oh, I kind of made assumptions about that. And then I've seen you since then and gone, ah, that, that doesn't... For me, that didn't... Oh, right, okay. I don't think it kind of got the warmth. Yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah. It's a bit serious. It's yeah. a bit, like, statementy. Yeah, probably. But that was a fun show. I did enjoy... And that was 2009, which is weird. I, you were talking about earlier on about all the new... All these new absurd clown comedians and stuff. 2009 is the... 
That's the that's that was the year. That's it all the year. It all that's happened. the year the cloud went over and some some people got hit by cosmic rays. It was big time. Honest to God, it was weird. It was two thousand and nine. The first year I started, I was in a terrible venue, and it was uh, the first year I was ever there. I went with C venues and went into this like venue that was in the back arse of nowhere. I'd never been to Edinburgh before, but anyway, two thousand and nine was the year. Me, Doctor Brown, Sam Simmons, and. Possibly boy with a tape in his face. I'm not too sure if Sam was there that year, but they were all there for the first time in 2009. Did you all have a little uh, clubhouse meetup? No, we just. I think we were unaware of each other, completely unaware of each other, which is beautiful because, like, obviously since then, Sam's become aware of me. So, so is, um, Phil, um, Sam Wills. I don't know. I don't. I don't know Sam that well at, at all, actually. But um, Sam Simmons and and Phil Burgers, like all three of us, have. Shared similar over the years now, knowing each other, gone like Sam came up to me a couple of years ago and was like, Ah, oh, yeah, I hear you doing like fucking you're eating uh, cornflakes. It's a pretty good, Sam. So, yeah, like, here eating cornflakes. Um, and I was like, Yeah, and he was like, Fuck, fuck. I was gonna, he was gonna, he was gonna do that. He was gonna do a similar thing anyway. He was like, fuck, you beat me to it. And then he was doing a thing with bread. I had a big bread fight in the show last yeah. year and he'd done a bread thing. And then, but then I was doing a full bread fight with like 10, like 10 loaves of bread in the audience. And we, it was just a full on, full room, a big bread fight. I remember that, yeah. And, um, and, uh, and he found out about that and he was like, fuck again. It was shit. But, uh, it's fun though. There's a, there, there's these lovely little connections with props and stuff that we've all used something similar or baby b- toy babies. Yeah, all our heads kind of working in similar ways, and yeah. which I love. I, I mean, the first time I went to see uh, 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 Doctor Brown, um, he got me on stage with him as well too uh, that year, not knowing that I, yeah. you know, and not knowing me and not knowing what I did. Um, but I loved it. It was just beautiful. And we had this lovely, uh, just connection because it was, it wasn't a verbal piece. It was all just visual. And it was just gore. I just had so much fun with him. And we spoke afterwards and I told him and we, we've just been friends ever since. But, uh, he was using cornflakes in a show that year, as was I. Yeah. And I was like, as soon as I saw the cornflakes on the stage, I was like, shit. Somebody else is using cornflakes. It's like going to see, it was like another a comedian, a verbal comedian going to see another verbal comedian and hearing a fucking similar joke Absolutely. and going, bastards. Ah, he's using the same gag or. Um, so yeah, because we use a lot of props, I, I just. Oh. So something I know about uh, Phil is that he did the Goliath course. Yeah, and I don't think Sam Simmons has done something equivalent. And you, you are a kind of circus. Background. Yeah, I've never did done Goliath circus training anyway. Uh, yeah, I did a lot of clown workshops with uh, really good um, lesser known clowns, but which kind of which no kind less of people? Uh, with um, Fraser Hooper. Yes, um, and. Uh, a guy called Tony Trafalicum, who is a Danish clown. Oh, the thing that I'm really, the thing, re- the really lucky thing that I have in Belfast for me, anyway, developing what I do, the comedy that I do, is that I've got a great platform within the circus school that the director, uh, Will Chamberlain, who runs the circus school, is a clown. Mm-hmm. Uh, that 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 was his thing. He doesn't do it anymore, but he he is a clown, and he's got that kind of clown brain, clown heart, and he over the years. Like, I've been doing it for 16 years now. He's brought over various clowns to do workshops with us. And uh, another guy was um, uh, John Lee. Yes, okay. You know John Lee. I don't think I've worked with John Lee, but I've heard of him. John yeah. Lee was great. And another guy called um, um, Joe Nacapel. Okay. Um, 
who's an American clown, who uh, and also um, Jonathan Taylor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know John. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And he's done some workshops with us, and I've also performed at the Festival of Fools with him in Belfast as well, too. Okay, and uh, he's fantastic. He's amazing. Jonathan Taylor's collector character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's uh, just yeah. brilliant. Absolutely, I couldn't and, agree uh, more. Let me let me just put on record: we're all pretty sure that the Sony Bravia advert where they oh yeah loads of bouncy oh they ripped it off the street, which just nicked off him. all the bouncy yep. balls yeah, down yeah, the street. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they completely nicked that off him. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so. so I've had a lot of experience doing climb workshops over the years, but not Gollier. I specifically kind of have been shying away from him because of the trend, the horrible yes. sycophant trend that everyone sort of has to have Gollier on their uh, CV now to uh, to have some kind of worth in the show. And it's just bullshit. Um, there was a Gollier workshop, weirdly enough, you should say that uh, two weeks ago. He was over for a week. Okay. Um, in Belfast, running a workshop for a week, and I had a lot of friends doing it, and I was tempted, but I didn't. And but I went to uh, chat. He did a chat one day, just a Q and A session, and I went and saw him. And I have to say, actually, that sort of made me consider a bit more. He seems like a nice enough chap. There is something about clown workshops where you is, is there an aspect of it whereby you are already a uh, successful professional clown performer uh-huh. and you need to kind of re uh humble yourself to yeah oh absolutely yeah that's quite weird isn't it because i yeah, did yeah. loads before i was a, a comic and yeah. i find it hard to, i've done i did phil's a few years ago which yeah was brilliant yeah and, and of all the clown workshops i've done it was probably the one that made me hate myself the least yeah i know there's very few clown workshops where they they will um focus on the positive things that you're doing yeah very few yeah, of them will say, yeah, what you just did there was great. It's all about the negative. It's all about what you've did is yeah, wrong and, and really... stripping you down. But it's, I think it's a lot to do with the ego thing as well, too, the kind of strip back your ego. Because if you think about it, everyone's there for a reason because they think they're funny or they think they've got that in them. So then, ergo, it's for the, it's up to the, uh, the tutor or the leader of the climb workshop to basically strip back that ego. Uh, and the reason why you're there to then build that back up again and, que- and have you question it more because you're going, you are that you are there for you're there so that you can be the, the one well, everyone you, looks at. Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. You're there to show off whether you, whether you're, uh, uh, whether you're still quiet in the workshop, you still, you're there for a reason to, because you know that you like to show off in front of people and you think somewhere in the back of your head that you are funny. Um, but the worst thing you can do, I think, is to not participate in a in a circus workshop. I I I, I believe there was a lot of golly. I didn't really push many, although it was a large workshop of about thirty odd people. So obviously he couldn't focus on everyone. But there was a lot of people just sitting there taking notes. Yeah, which is bullshit. You yeah. know, it's it's you, sh- you need to get involved. You need to get f- active and physical within a client workshop, or you're just there's pointless. Really, you know, to be honest, you're not going to learn anything. You're only going to learn it when you're up there, stripped bare, literally bare, oh, bare in your soul and your. I always just. I always it's scary. It's scary as fuck. Like, but I mean, the you've got it. Problem I had with it was something that Angela DeCastro said. Was did a clown workshop with her years ago. Yeah. Um. She said about like clowns. You have to own it. You have to take responsibility for your terrible decision. Mm. And the, now that I'm some distance from clowning, clowning. I do wonder about my my own perceived inability to do that is sort of to do with the person I was at school and not wanting to be a target for ridicule. Yeah. Like I really just like I always I think 
looking back, that's what tripped up my own clown kind of practice. I was always, I needed to be gobby. I needed to win, and you know, yeah, it turned yeah, into yeah, the yeah. type of stand up that I do now, which I think is a bit more open hearted now than yeah, me trying yeah. to just be the funny guy desperately, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. But I, I do think there's something about ego, and to be a good clown, I wonder if you have to be able to let go of the ego and fail in front of people. Oh, absolutely. Who, not, not just strangers, fail in front of people who know you. You've got yeah. to be prepared to eat shit oh, and God, go, yeah. oh, see, I'm just another failure. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, like, in my heart, I tense up when I think about that. I'm like, no, I don't want them to know I'm a failure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's your relationship to that? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I... <sighs> I just go out to play, really. I mean, I go out to just play with an audience. I mean... And as long as I'm, I mean, it's a very simple philosophy, but as long as I'm having fun, because audiences smell the fear within a, within any performer, but they, especially with comedians, they smell it immediately. As soon as you walk on stage, it's your body language and which client and workshops come in very, very handy for this, but it is your body language. I mean, what I like to do and tell uh, like a lot of comedians who are maybe starting out and stuff like that, it's just to, if you're watching it, take your favorite comedian. If you're into verbal stand up. Watch your favorite comedian, somebody like even Stuart Lee, for, for example, and turn the sound down. Don't listen to his jokes. Watch what he's doing on stage. Watch how they're walking around on that stage and how they're moving on the stage. It's hugely important. That That is just as important as what is coming out of their mouths. Because people focus on the jokes too much. You could be on a stage. I love being on a stage. And it's the whole doing nothing, literally doing nothing on a stage. And you can get laughs out of that. I used to do a piece. I do it from time to time where I just stand behind the microphone and act like I forgotten what I'm going to say. I've forgotten the joke. And I just stand there and hold it for as long as possible with just my mouth and using my eyes and my eyebrows to just uh, 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 communicate to the audience that I... It's almost on the tip of my tongue of what I'm about to say, but I'm not making any noise. It's just my mouth and my eyes and my eyebrows. And the audience are, have been absolutely cacking themselves laughing from this, you know. And the more you can hold that and the more you can milk that, it's just fascinating that you can get, it's just, it's always fascinated me. The reason why I do what I do is that I want to find other ways of mining laughter from an audience to mine and and squeeze laughter out of them, but not with the obvious jokes that everyone else is doing. There's other ways to do it, you know, physically or with noises or with just, yeah, there's other ways of doing it. So let's talk then about... Same, same way with the music. It's like there's other way to entertain people with music, but you don't have to just like stand and strum a guitar like yeah. all the other folk singers or all the other, you know, like, there's other ways of exploring comedy the way there is other ways of exploring music and... and evoking emotions from people through music but via comedy evoking laughter from people but there's other ways of doing it so what are the starting points then for something like that presumably before you go out there and pretend to have forgotten that you're you know or you play Mm. that game Mm. play not pretend Mm. before you go out there and play that game Yeah, yeah you've got to have the idea for that game yeah so do you have are you like keeping a notebook of ideas for bits or yeah, like yeah, the cornflakes yeah. thing yeah yeah i would write it down i would i would take a note of it um yeah and I'll, yeah yeah and can you then rehearse it can you rehearse the cornflakes in not in front of an audience no you need an audience it only it's a two-way thing i mean I, I describe it like it's like sex yeah they're just are you gonna sit in the house and just wank have a wank 
and then imagine what it's like to have sex with someone and pretend to have it's just like watching porn or having a, you need to go and sleep with someone you need to be physical with somebody else if you want to know what that's like it's a two-way thing stand-up comedy is a two-way thing uh you need the audience there and sometimes it, you can go out and if it's not working uh like you need to charm the audience it's like a first date when you're going and performing in front of an audience it's a first date you gotta charm them and you gotta win them over and and then you'll have a good night um otherwise uh you know literally like you're in bed together and otherwise it's just literally you're on top while they lie there reading a book and you're just pathetically humping away at this person until it's over and then you get off them and they're like yeah whatever thanks very much a lot of stand-up can be like that when you're watching it people are just sitting there wishing the act would just get the fuck off them get off the stage get away from me but they just sit through it whereas you know yourself whenever it's working it's magic it's magical you walk on a stage complete strangers but you're immediately everyone's on board everyone's in it everyone's on it what I do, I want that. Obviously, I want that. But also, I like to play around with the room as well, too. I like to divide the audience up as well, too. I don't want everyone to be on board or to take a while to get on board. You know, I don't want to hand it to them on a plate. It's like, you know, I'm a huge fan of independent cinema and stuff as well, too. I don't want to go and watch a movie that, you know, where it's all just the plot and everything is just handed to me on a plate. I want to work shit out myself. I want to figure out where they're going, why they're doing that, you know. And I kind of see that in a lot of the comedy that I do and the comedy that I enjoy watching. I mean, I always go back to like my biggest, uh, one of my, well, like one of my big turning points, my like Elvis moment in comedy was whenever I first saw Vic Reeves, Big Night Out, mm-hmm. 91, something like that, 91, 92. Um, and I saw that one night and literally came into college the next day and went did anybody see that last night what yeah. the fuck was that about yeah. and it just literally blew my mind that was I my big elvis moment of I like what the stick yeah and just the, yeah. that this is what this is the show yeah everyone is shouting what's on the end of yeah, the yeah. yeah 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 i oh just i just that was my big yeah that was like my elvis kind of moment of whenever i discovered punk real punk comedy was like fuck yeah that was it blew my mind and then and then I started sort of going back to really discover like the roots of uh, um, of Vic Reeves's uh, influences, and, and I mean, obviously, having gone the art college as well too, I was very much always into Dada stuff like that. I didn't know what it was at the time, but I, I eventually got into Dada art and stuff, and that or, anarchy art, you know, the art Dada. I think of like absurdist performance art. Yeah, that it's was? a mystery. It's, a, it's everything. It's a huge, big uh, umbrella of just anything that uh, breaks the rules and just pushes the the boundaries and 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 just says fuck you to anything that comes along within the establishment and you just you're just constantly kicking down kicking it down and that's what i try to do with me you know because there's so many panel shows there's so many comedy has become so fucking mediocre at the minute on tv anyway you know um i just i just where's the where's the where's the punk where's the fucking punk rock in the you know, because I, I do, I, I, I see comedy in parallels with music and, and other and other mediums as well, too, you know, and I want to see where the the punk rock is. The, the, but know. should should the punk rock be on TV? Surely yeah, for the punk rock of course. To, surely for the punk rock to exist, media, you know, mainstream TV should be a load of mediocre stuff. Yeah, but there, there's, there are outlets. I mean, I wouldn't have seen, I wouldn't have seen the young ones if it hadn't been for, you know, sure. Auntie. Yeah. Unfortunately, good old Auntie on the BB. Or was it Channel 4? Fucking no, it was wrong. BBC. It was BBC, wasn't it? Yeah. I wouldn't have seen them. 
Yeah. Would not have seen them. I wouldn't have seen a lot of that stuff that was on TV back then. But obviously, producers back then were, you know, a different breed. And now there's a different... It's uh, it's all to do with the producers and who and the, and the, the programmers who's letting this stuff it's through. It's about risk, isn't it? It's yeah. like no one can risk anything. No, there's no risk left anymore. Uh, on TV, anyway, there's no risk. I mean, they let in the occasional, these little these little internet things that they let people like Sam Simmons do. And they yeah. let like, Dr. And, Brown. And even that just seems like such a jumping through hoops method. Exactly. Like, it, it's a way of abdicating risk. Yeah. We'll only do the stuff that got to the most... Yeah. Only the only the blap that gets the most hits yeah. will then get a pilot. Yeah, and yeah. out of all the pilots that get the most hits... Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm probably quite wrong there. And I say I say blap in a generic way rather than no, single I know out a specific yeah, yeah, yeah. network. Yeah. But it does seem to me it's like in, in the great shift from tv dying yeah to, you know where tv tries let's try and recreate what's working on the internet yeah no because the internet's no. doing that yeah you know and and on on i think what do you think about this online i think there is there is genuine risk stuff if you look at something like don't hug me i'm scared have you seen that no you'd fucking love that right, okay. it's like five or six videos and it's puppetry and <laughs> right, it's like okay. for kids except it goes really dark and wrong and is very cool. absurd i like it's it very, we'll watch some after this all and right I, okay i direct right. everyone to look at don't hug me i'm scared okay I'm get the makers of that on the show but it's very awesome but um or or those things which are like just thinking of other stuff like rob cantor's shia labeouf song on uh, on YouTube, you know, it's a huge, it's a it's a massive contemporary dance piece with big props and big production values about being chased through the woods by Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I like have that, heard of that. I yes, feel like that's that's kind of. Really but why I want to see that on mainstream TV though yeah. as well. I yeah, really, sure. I think because I always go back to the fact that you, if you think about it, and it just blows my mind that the Goon Show, which is still still to this day, you listen to the Goon Show, it is still fresh. It is still like nothing else that's out there and has ever been written since then it is just the most insane absurd wonderful magical fucked up madness and everybody that was the biggest listening uh they had they had the biggest listenership right across uh, the uk back then in the in, was it in the 50s on the wireless everybody would sit around Mm-hmm. You know, mom, mother and father listening on the radio to the Goons and now the Goon Show, you know, and it was the most fucking mental. You listen to it now. It is fucking mental and it's better than anything that has come since and before or before or since like it blows Python out of the water. It blows Vic Reeves out of the water. It blows the Mighty Bush out of the water. It's fucking amazing. The Goons is still yet to be recognized as the the ground zero of absurdist modern absurdist comedy uh, uh you know within the medium of you know the modern media radio and then on the tv but um it's just mind-blowing but yet everybody back in the 50s was listening to this and lapping it up and getting it more to the point getting the silliness getting that madness but everybody was loving it and that for some reason from that point and they had the biggest listenership right across i mean everybody Millions of people were listening to this. And from then, you can just see this gradual decline in, uh, well, I get to the powers that be that run these, um, that run the radio and run the TV. Just, um, not wanting so many people to, to hear this sort of, that sort of comedy for some bizarre reason. I don't know why. It just got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until there's just a tiny little sort of niche, little, the odd, you, you know, them they might feed the masses the odd little absurdist, you know, um, minnow, and that's it. You know, there's no big fucking fat absurd trout anymore for everyone to get stuck into and Isn't- fucking fill their bellies with it. You know, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I'm just gonna enjoy that image for a second. So, thank right? you. Cheers. Um, 
the <laughs> if if things were different and absurdist stuff was everywhere, would there be less oh, you attraction don't want, for you, you? You wouldn't want it being, to be because no, you're the of outsider at the moment. You are one of a small band of rebels against <laughs> the kind of mainstream standard fare. Yeah, but it, it definitely it needs to be it. It needs to be accessible, and it's just not. Unfortunately, there's not really. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I have fought the system quite a bit over the years. I mean, I had a lot of big offers from big agencies over the years, and I, my punk, <laughs> punk morals got the better of me, and I just backed away from them. So, I mean, I have had a chance to. I, pro- I don't know where the freaking hell I would be right now if I had. But I'm glad I didn't. Though I don't have any regrets of not taken on those big um, offers and stuff like that and um, yeah when you say offers you don't need to make I'm not asking you I'm to be not, specific I'm not mentioning any but names no, no but sure but what for like, you say like a big a, like what what do you mean by a big offer like an offer of a TV show or uh, a yeah stuff that would have yeah stuff representation and stuff that um, representation of companies that would have that would have then led to panel show offers yeah probably live at the Apollo offers because I've seen my contemporaries that were that were offered those um uh that had those offers on the table at the same time as me they took them and that's where they are now and that's fine and that suits them it's absolutely fine i i you know it's great and i'm really chuffed for them I'm really proud to see them doing so well but it yeah it just didn't suit me I, I, it just didn't suit me i guess so i have no regrets from it um when I think about it too much, I do worry about like where the hell I may have gone with that, you know, what it might have done to my head a little bit because it just isn't for me, you know. It is interesting to th- if you're going to be a rebel and an outsider and a punk in your forties <laughs> when you want to be travelling, especially if you do decide if you are able to have a kid, yeah, and you don't want to necessarily travel as much and be as much of a road warrior as you were oh no i'd love to i'd love to but i'm talking about in con in the concept of stand-up comedy and stand-up comedy on tv i also have luckily the uh ability to go and do the street sure which is the whole other you know yourself it's a whole other um beast and a whole other freedom there for you as well too you know and i i to be honest i i did get there was i was pushing to try and get melbourne for next year the melbourne comedy festival to get in there to do my show in melbourne and um but i've been offered the street festival in melbourne to do the street show right and i'm actually really relieved to to be doing that a lot more that i'm going to get to do the street over in melbourne and get to get to sh- you know to do my stuff to is it more free is it why you're relieved yeah, because it's freer. It made me realize just how much I love doing the street more than stand-up comedy clubs. I fucking hate stand-up comedy clubs. There's way more pressure on everyone. So much pressure on the audience, pre-expectations on the audience because they bought a ticket or whatever. They're, they're, they're paid in to be there. They're sitting on their seats. Um, the lights go down. They're on a stage. And there's this like uh, there's this big white elephant in the room with comedy. And I'm going to just say it. It's theater. It's just theater. It's one person on a stage um, reciting um, rehearsed material. Whether there is a bit of improv chucked in there anyway, it's still rehearsed. Their whole character's rehearsed because the person that they are on stage is not them. It's just not them. You meet a comedian off stage, it's not the same person. 
it's always disappointing when you meet them, you know, because they're a lot quieter. They're usually they're usually a lot quieter, a little bit more introverted, apart from Tom Stead. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. he won't mind me saying yeah, that. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> Tom won't mind me saying that because we go way back. Um, yeah. <laughs> he's even larger when he's off stage. Um, but, uh. So it's theatre. It's theatre. It's just theatre. No, no, but nobody wants to admit it. It's one of those things. It's like nobody's like, it's not, it's not cool. Nobody wants that to go, hey, do you want to go down to the theatre club? You know, like, to see the, the funny people in the, in the to little, the in the little independent theatre club. Doing the thing that they, yeah. they're pretending is, uh, yeah. improvised. It's not. It was the same thing that happened with Eddie Izzard whenever people started transume and shit back then. But years and years ago, somebody went to see his show twice. Yeah. <laughs> this famous case where... Uh, I'd never heard of this. Yeah. I see like, what the territory is. Like, Yeah. And they, they saw the show and they were like, oh, he's just, it's just all rehearsed. It's not... So they were really disappointed to see an entire show that... Uh, and you were like, yeah, what the friggin' hell? His... Like, what did you expect? Did you think this was all made up on the spot and it was all no so there was one disgruntled punter I remember seeing this on a documentary about Eddie Azard and uh, the punter was so pissed off that whenever they went to see the show for a second time that it was all just rehearsed and it was all just scripted and they they tried to get their, you know, their money back or something I don't know they tried to sue I don't know some madness anyway um, but yeah it's fascinating that, that, that yeah people just kind of um, it's like puppetry whenever you're watching a, especially when the puppeteer is visible and the puppet's in front of them you just forget about the puppeteer if it's done well if it's done well puppetry's done well you'll ignore the puppeteer and you'll just focus on the puppet yep. and you'll uh, be that as an adult or a kid I've seen adults and I, I that's one of the things that I love about puppetry is that you you um, suspend your disbelief and focus on the puppet it's the same with comedy everyone's kind of suspending they know. Everybody knows. Yeah. Everybody knew there was like bearded hippies underneath the Muppets. There was bearded hippies under the Muppets. Everybody knew this, but you just forget that. You can forget. You don't need to because you're not showing it. Yeah. But so it, when you see a stand-up comic, you'll probably ev- be that everyone knows that ev- there is either everybody's a bearded hippie or a suit-wearing money guy. Yeah. You know, or, or whatever that yeah. you know, that person's or, actual personality. Or the it. comedian on stage will acknowledge that big white elephant in the room that, um, you know, like somebody who does pull apart the structure of stand-up, somebody like Tony Law. He does it beautifully, you know, um, for example. There's other comedians that do it as well, but Tony Tony does it really well. He, break down, he breaks down the structure of how comedy is put together, how jokes put together, how you walk on stage and how banter, the whole banter thing that he did, you know, banter. Yeah. And just having, you know, shit banter with the audience, but acknowledging that that's just what comedians do. That's the format. And that's what hundreds of them do. Hundreds of them. Thousands of the bastards every night of the of you know the week in comedy clubs right across the globe will do that same format and people will just buy into it happily like a comfortable meal that they go to like meat and two veg yep I like my Sunday roast that's all I want I know what's in it it's no surprises there's no spices there's nothing weird that's all I want but then that's not what everybody wants simple as that. Everybody wants, and, and your angle is that they don't know that they want it, so it needs there needs to be more. Yeah, they don't. They haven't tried so it. Yeah, can, some people, yeah. whenever they get a taste of it, they're like, "Oh, fucking hell, this is a bit different," but I like it. This is still, yeah, and it sparks bits of their brains off. Like whenever the first time I saw Vic Reeves, it just knocked. And when whenever I watch Python and and uh, Spike Milligan and stuff like that, there's something in your brain. It it does something. It makes your brain go wobbly. 
something weird, like zingy. It makes your brain go a bit zingy because because it's all non sequiturs, especially like early Steve Martin stuff as well. First time I heard and watched like really early Steve Martin whenever he was at his height of his Wild game. And crazy guy. Yeah. You yeah. watch that stuff and it is just you don't know what's coming next. And he explains it really well in his book, The Um Born Standing Up. up yeah. And he explains it really well as just like he wanted to leave and that's kind of where I was coming from as well. That's what I wanted to do in my comedy as well was to leave the audience laughing at um a a piece that you did three bits back and you're already three bits forward. So they're constantly trying to keep up with you, constantly trying to, rather than just leading them along going, and then this happened, and then, you know, pull back and reveal, and then move it on to the next joke. No, you're racing ahead, and they're trying to keep up with you the whole time, throughout the whole show. And then you'd stop occasionally, and then they'll eventually catch up, and then you'll be off on another tangent, you know, with all these uh, non-sequiturs in it. That kind of comedy appeals to me, and that's what I always try to put on stage. We were talking about the difference between the 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 theater of stand up and yeah. the street in the context of melbourne so there's yeah. less pressure on the there's less expectation yeah there's the- less pressure on everyone you have to keep it's up to you as well though there's less pressure on the audience there's no less pressure on you there's probably more pressure on you because well a little bit more pressure because you have to um keep the audience you got to keep because they can walk away they can walk away at any time they want unless they're sort of you know sitting down the front row but they can they can bugger off they, you know, the world is right there. There's no walls or anything. You're outside. They can't piss off whenever they want. So you you have to have a real charm to do to be a street performer. You gotta have a proper real something honest and charming to keep an audience there and on an honesty that they're gonna wanna stay and watch you. Especially the stuff that I do. Because <laughs> I'm not doing like big juggling tricks. I'm not on a giraffe unicycle. I'm not, you know, juggling fire. I'm not doing any of that. I'm literally doing fuck all on on the street. I'm dicking around like a big man child. And uh, and that came from uh, one of my biggest influences would have been uh, Dr. Palfi. Yeah. Whenever I saw him perform, I was just amazed that he had all these props but he did nothing with them he very rarely went over to them uh it would just be it would be general banter it would just be general kind of talking bull just playing around playing about him uh the other clown i love uh rumple stilsk rumple 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 yeah i saw him a couple of years ago in the festival of fools in belfast again two suitcases full of props just madness just like yeah I loved it. I just loved the chaos of it, of him just not seeming and not actually knowing what the hell he was doing, you know. Um, but yet he did. I totally agree. Oh, he's a nutcase. Yeah. And really authentic. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I do. I love that genuine madness. I, again, it's back to the madness again of genuinely somebody opening up, opening up that. That's what a good client does. A good client does open up fully to an audience doesn't put on a persona it's not theater the material is is rehearsed where it's there you've got the props and stuff but you can go off on tangents so many tangents as well too and it's easier to do on the street as well but yeah uh palfi and and rumple and um uh herbie treehead would be another one as well too he's just his madness on the street's manicness but it's play it's play they're big kids they're children it's not it's not dangerous. Yeah. It's dangerous in the fact that as other adults watching it, they'll be like, oh, this guy's mental. They'll make that judgment and go, this guy's fucking mental. The kids, though, love it because they get it. Kids get it. And that's a lot to do with my show. I mean, I just want to, adults making to be stuff, kids again. Making stuff in front of children that you can then take on yeah. 
to do in front of adults. Yeah. There's one of the other things, where, and we must wrap up soon. I've yeah, got yeah, two no final questions. One is about the your manner on stage, which in all of your reviews points out, like all of your reviews go, this is nuts. He gets the audience involved, but don't stay away. It's great. He's really nice. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So many of your reviews that have a common theme yeah. of everyone's on stage buttering an ironing board. Everyone's joining in, but don't stay away. He's a really good, he's really warm. He's really nice. <laughs> he's really, someone said he's really amenable. I don't know. Right, right yeah, word. probably. Sounds about right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you maybe that comes from making the stuff for kids or being yeah, used to perform. I think so. I mean, I do. I teach kids all the time. You know, I teach two to seven year olds in circus school and I love it. They're one of the biggest inf- influences and inspirations for me. Um, you know, the material that they come off with that I plagiarize. <laughs> no, just, just, just the stuff that they say is just where their heads are at. I look at them and I envy them so much. I'm like, I wish I could be. I, and I try to do that on stage, try to come down to that level, go back to that level not even come down to it, just go back because we were all kids and that's the problem. We've forgotten that. We've forgotten that we are that. That's part of our development as humans is, you know, we, we, we close that door and we shouldn't fucking close that door, you know, keep that door open of of being innocent and playful. Are you getting out of your career what you wanted to? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. It's, yeah, it's what I always, I, I'm very happy with where I am actually with it. <clears throat> uh, I didn't want to go down that route of what a lot of other stand up comedians that started out around me did. I mean, I'm envious in the way that, um, the likes of Sam Simmons and, and, and Dr. Brown have a lot more, uh, profile, but that's, that's, through their own fucking hard work and I respect them so much for that I um, maybe not I haven't been as lucky as them but I'm also maybe not as motivated as them <laughs> in that um, they probably have a, a better drive and I respect them for that as well too a lot um, like I said I've, I've I've shied away from a lot of big opportunities in the past that I do, do you think there's at. just part of that luck is that they got spotted first. It's Maybe. quite difficult for yeah, you to get just, an award for blowing everyone's minds <laughs> when they kind of became visible first. Yeah. Yeah. True. True, true, true. I mean, that's a fucker, right? Like, it's nothing yeah. to do with them yeah. as individuals, but one of those things that happens in, oh, it is in, a bit, in but stand-up is one people of those... go, wow, this guy's doing something we've never seen before. And you're like, really? Have you never seen that before? Yeah, yeah. Because people have been doing that for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you kind of... But I feel the same way as well too. Like Sam, Sam Wills, everybody losing their shit over Sam, and I went to see him, and he's great. He's a great client, but I'd seen a lot of that client and technique and style before. Yeah. But he's presenting it in a new way, which he's is the way it's very done. motivated, very and he's driven. extremely friggin' driven and extremely yeah. motivated. With, uh, but I love how he presents it in a modern. He repackaged it so well yeah. for a modern audience. You know, even just the look, even just his look is just gorgeous. You know, it's so well. not manufactured but his marketing head Mm -hmm. clearly he is very motivated and he has a very good marketing head and how how, uh, his image as well is just fucking brilliant you know you can't fault the guy at all and he is a superb clown fucking brilliant clown you know and, uh, so I feel that you, when I see your shows at Edinburgh, I feel you're on an upward trajectory of kind of more and more people are going, fucking hell, you've got to see Paul Curry. 
Right. Do you really? recognize that? Yeah, no, I think so. I don't recognize that Do at you all. Not? No. Because I don't have anyone. See, I don't have anyone around me to tell me that shit. Yeah, right. I'm completely unaware of all this. I just, I, in Edinburgh this year, it was just me. I don't have any manager. I don't have any PR team. I don't have anyone. It's just me. I make, I design my own flyers, get them printed up myself, pay for all that. And then I flyer myself. I don't have a flyering team. Um, the only people would be the door staff working for Bob Slayer, who I would occasionally ask how many tickets have been sold that day. But that is it. I have no concept of any kind of, if there is a buzz at all, uh, or any kind of what. But just, just the fact, though, I guess, I guess the fact that people are coming to see the show, there was like really good numbers this year. But I kind of put that down in my head. I put that down to just going out and flaring for like three hours every day, which is what I did. And, you know, you put in the work, people are going to, if you can charm them enough, obviously, on the street. And I, lo- I love talking to people on the street anyway. So when I'm flyering, that really helps. You know, the people are like, yeah, we'll give this guy a go. And it's only five pound in. So it doesn't cost much either. So you've got that going for you as well. I don't know. I have no idea. But um, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying being with Bob Slayer in the, in the pay what you want fringe. It feels honest. It feels real. Having been with the Pleasants and stuff in the past and see venues and things this feels a lot more diy punk and a bit more real i guess it feels like the real fringe it feels like you're part of the real fringe rather than just a big um big corporate monster you know with all these people making so much money off all these hard-working acts you know that are going out there and fucking putting themselves in front of bang audiences every night you know um and then these producers and directors and, and, and venue owners are just walking away with a huge, huge profit from Edinburgh. It's just kind of sickening. It's sickening to the point where I'm considering just like packing it all in quite soon, actually, and, and going off and following another dream of mine, which is to open up a cafe. Is that right? Really? Yeah. Really? <laughs> really? Seriously? Considering it? Yeah, I've been... I've been considering this for a long time. Well, it, it would be a venue as well. I would run comedy in it, too. But I've always wanted to open up a cafe, kind of hub, gallery, cafe, eatery, venue, you know. So, uh, I don't know. I might I might do that at some point. So, I'm certainly not making a shitload of money from comedy that justifies me sticking at it, really, to be honest. You know, my main bread and butter is the circus, teaching in the circus school in Belfast, you know. And I get a lot of satisfaction from that. We teach um, outreach workshops with, like, special needs groups at the local college, um, kids with autism as well, too, kids and adults um, who suffer uh, autism. We do a lot of work with them, and it's way more satisfactory, you know, um, than... And it doesn't it doesn't necessarily pay well, but it, it's just... Yeah, it's a lot more satisfactory than going out and getting judged by, you know, a hundred people in a sweaty comedy club. You know, that can be fun to a certain degree but it um life satisfaction i don't know you know kind of like i just like helping people you know and uh comedy audiences sometimes don't <laughs> feel like they deserve it <laughs> well <to> wrap up <laughs> you are every year like don't don't quit now. <laughs> don't quit uh, now, man. Uh, Every year, 
I notice you have more and more of a presence. It's just that thing of like, I get, you know, I've, I've been doing stand up for 11 or 12 years. Yeah. And I just felt this year like, oh, something's changing. More mm. people are coming. Mm. Oh, thank fuck. Because I've had those thoughts in, in the mm. past of just going, well. You felt given- this with your own yeah, stuff? Fuck yes. Yeah. 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 Like you think, look, I've given this as hard a go as I possibly can. Yeah. There was a period about two years ago when I just went, do you know what? It's more to life. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's... I've certainly gone that's, up and down through those moments. Yeah. And then, and this year, I feel like I've turned the corner and gone, ah, oh, hang on, I'm so much happier. Mm. I feel like there were more people in the crowd who were there specifically to see me this year. Yeah. You know, and the stuff you're doing is so great. It's just... Oh, thank you. you. I feel like you're in a kind of Seymour Mace position. You need to get an award to remind you how much we <laughs> no, I, love it. No, I don't. No, I, I don't I, mean I, for your personal... So, mm. I mean, like... Your fans, and I count myself among that group, oh, would you. love you to get just another little bit of recognition and just go, oh, by the way, Paul fucking Curry, yeah. so that the rest of everybody could get on board and we could all go, yeah, well, we, you know. Oh, that's really sweet of you. Thank you. That's nice. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like I've probably got one more. I got one more album in me. I think I've got one more show in me. I'll see how it goes next year. I do have a lot of new stuff that is a very different energy again than the last show um but we'll see we'll see how it goes but i'm gonna i'll do one more show next year yeah definitely yeah absolutely and then and then we'll see after that the cafe's calling me man i really i really love the idea (laughs) running a cafe i don't know why anyway that'll probably all change next year though when i win the award thanks man So thank you. That was Paul. Thanks to Paul for coming on. Don't be depressed, Paul. Don't give up. I mean, don't be depressed. That's ridiculous. Did you see that meme that was going around on Facebook recently? And it said, this is a lovely walk in the woods. Um, this is a, oh, this is, no, it said, it, it showed a picture of a lovely walk in the woods and it said, this is an antidepressant. And then it showed a picture of some antidepressants and it said, these are shit. And it's like, yeah, yeah, good, good science, mate. Well done. Um, nonetheless, I don't mean don't be depressed. I mean, don't be, but, uh, I, I hope and am confident that Paul will continue down the road to, um, sorting out his own mental health he did also point out to me uh, after the well before and after the recording that he only had two hours sleep so we will uh, imbue him with slightly more positivity than at the very end of that episode uh, might suggest he's a wonderful performer a really lovely man and i heartily recommend you uh, you check his stuff out but for god's sake paul don't pack it in and make a cafe i mean cafes are great but there's only one paul curry come on so um that's all for now thank you very much to matt hoss for logging this episode thank you to emily crosby for her seemingly eternal work uh, administrating on my behalf and thanks to saskatron for that as well um and thank you to daryl daryl smith who is the new editor of this show and it's doing really well daryl and i are embarking on a venture to put these shows on youtube <laughs> embarking on a venture here's how i embarked on the venture daryl can you put these shows on youtube all right mate <laughs> he hasn't fucking done it yet though has he <laughs> uh, that's because i've been fanning around with the image so hopefully we're going to be able to make this show more discoverable on youtube as well and um, sadly not with a full nicely edited suite of uh, of you know a three camera setup of each episode just a static image and the audio that'll do for now um, but many thanks to daryl uh, and i'm thanking him on behalf of uh, of all of you listeners as well so um I mean, <laughs> why don't we have... You remember the bugle had fuck you, Chris. Why don't we just have thanks, Daryl? Why don't we have hashtag thanks, Daryl? One R in Daryl. 
on this particular occasion. Um, so you can tweet me at ComComPod, email me info at comedianscomedian.com if you're a stand-up comedian with three-plus hours of material under your belt, um, as in you've performed three different hours of material, not just ideas you had. Uh, you can email me with the secret code that you would like to be introduced to my beautiful daughter, and that way I know you're not just asking to be on the show, but you're asking to be on the show because you love the show. That's how that's done. Um, and if you're a listener, and or if you're anyone, and you would uh, like to communicate something to me about your feelings about the show, remember if you add PS, I'm a cool guy, that basically lets me off the hook and lets me reply to you with one word, or I mean I normally do at least a sentence, And it just helps me get on with my life. More of which I will tell you about in the chatty bit coming up now. But for now, that concludes the podcast. Thanks for listening. Comedianscomedian.com forward slash tour for all of the dates. Okie dokie. Well, where to start? I'll tell you why I can uh, relate to Paul's two hours of sleep. It's because I have not had much more than that myself. The boot has been kicking off. We have, uh, we've been, uh, we're staying away this weekend while I do some gigs and we've done the military effort that is involved in I, I should say uh, my partner has done most of the military effort I'm ad- arriving at the gig earlier and then coming back while she's uh, traveling 100 miles with a tiny screaming baby in a car and loading the car and all the shit that comes with a baby oh my god oh my god we're actually now I'm in uh, a lovely living room and we have set up his little high chair which is the Ikea model can't remember what it's called but it's the dead cheap incredibly good one that everyone swears by a little high, cha- uh, high chair as we wean the little wean um, and it's currently sitting inside this is it's a little life hack for you other parents of new children and um, it's sitting inside one of those huge I mean god knows what like a 25 litre garden rubbish bag but like a, a really it's one that sounds like this like that so not like a bin bag but like a really hardy thing for chucking branches and twigs in and stuff to take to the tip that job hasn't happened <laughs> but uh, instead I have repurposed my brand new garden rubbish bag to have the uh, the high chair sitting inside it so that I can feed him because the kitchen in this place is far too small to put a baby in and all the stuff isn't here and the room was too cold and he kept waking up and there is nothing worse than waking up in the middle of the night worrying that your baby is cold like I mean there's many things worse than that but there is something weird and primal about going I have failed to adequately heat my baby I think the radiator's broken or if I turn it on then it's going to start making that ticking noise as the metal rubs against the metal as it warms up you think that's going to wake him up as well so he's just got to be a bit cold and he's fine he's he made it through the night um but now we're all frazzled and it's that sort of family frazzle this really hard where you all love each other so much but you're like i'm so frazzled and i feel so guilty and i've made the bad made my baby cold <laughs> i think i'm reminded not for the first time about tom gleason's routine brilliant american uh, australian forgive me australian stand-up you'll remember from an early ep of this show um, tom gleason had a wonderful routine about taking your baby to get injections and all you really want to do is when they pull the needle out is just pick up the baby and kick them and run screaming down the street oh god oh it's a it's a bit of a family frazzle this one just now um we're doing great this is the point you know how am i i'm great thanks how are you <laughs> thanks a couple of you emailed me about about that about trying to get into the habit of answering the question how are you with yeah really good thanks and you <laughs> which is a slightly you know a slightly better way to live your life than going well here are all my worries why don't we compete in some pointless uh, exercise um 
So look, ultimately, I'm well. Uh, my partner is well. My baby is well. We're all well. It's all fine. But it's just like lying in bed going, oh, I got like a casting for a thing. I never do castings. And uh, I mean, I, I do. I did loads. And then uh, I've been lucky enough to be able to turn down <laughs> the ones I didn't want to do. And now I've got one coming up that I do want to do. And I've had about three hours sleep. And uh, there's that. And then I've got to do a gig later on that's quite an important don't screw this up sort of a gig. Oh, so it is just, it, it, you're lying in bed and you're thinking to yourself, what of the things from the following day can I remove? What can reasonably remove? I suppose I could just quit my job. I could, I could bail on this casting. I could just not turn up for the gig. I could just grab my family, one under each arm, and just run somewhere warm and sleepy. Oh my goodness me. I've been really enjoying uh, the books of Julia Donaldson recently. Um, This is a children's author. You've got to get into this shit when you're a dad. She's, you'll know her from the Gruffalo. So, uh, you know, I'm pretty late to the party here because we've all heard of the Gruffalo. But um, she's, uh, she's got this lovely little book called Sharing a Shell. <laughs> it's, if, you'll, uh, if you saw, which show was it? If you saw an hour, then you'll know that I have a real fondness for crabs for some reason. And uh, I just love them. I just like crabs. I, I go rock pooling. I try and find a crab. It's just a thing I do. And... Um, and she's got this little book called Sharing a Shell. And it's about a crab and a bristle worm and an anemone all sharing a shell. And uh, I was reading it to the boy this morning and I started tearing up. And I can't pretend it was completely through lack of sleep. <laughs> I really... Here's a thing. Does anyone get this? When you... I've got some... I'm just looking at the ones on, on the floor here. Oi Frog. Oi Frog is an excellent book. Um, but uh, it doesn't make me cry. King Baby literally makes me cry if you've not read king baby by kate beaton b-a-t-o-n get hold of a copy of that zagazoo by quentin blake literally makes me cry (laughs) the amount the simplicity of the narrative in most children's books when they just when they go here is a thing that's been set up and here is a thing it's like the most reduced kind of um you know, reduced idea of narrative, like, here is a person that wants a thing. There's an obstacle in the way, and now it's resolved. <laughs> and then you go, yes, that's lovely. And yet, the, I mean, you know, I don't mean to suggest these are easy to write, because the, they're just such a distillation of story. They absolutely make their hair stand up uh, on the back of my neck, and uh, they make the tears flow from my eyes, because they're... There's something, you know, that resolute, that narrative resolution of what you like, you know, in comedy terms, like a, a really excellent callback at the end of a show, like there is, like there bloody is at the end of Compared to What, which if you've seen it, you know that that last reveal, ha ha ha, yes, I am a clever boy. But, you know, when something happens like that in, in such short form, when someone kind of tells a story with 10 lines and you go, yes, but no, but yes, ah, oh, I literally find myself <laughs> reading to my baby son and he doesn't eat, you know, I, I, it's good to read to babies, but it's not like he can understand any of it. He just wants to eat the book. It's fine. That's his, that's his thing. Um, some delicious literature. That's what he's into. And, uh, and yet I'm reading it to him, choking up at the end of all of these stories. The amount of times I've got to like the last page of Zagazoo where you realize what's actually going on and you go, oh no, by then you've, 
read this book, it's phenomenal. You realise what's happening, and then the last page you go, oh, of course, that's the only way it could end. <laughs> I'm literally thinking of it now, I'm going, oh, oh, that's so beautiful, man. Anyway, these are the deluded ramblings of uh, someone who's had not enough sleep, and yet also, they're my real thoughts and opinions. So what was I talking about earlier on about the way, you know, your perception of the world is the world as far as you're concerned isn't it if you're if you're a depressed person and you think god everything's awful then you feel like everything is awful and only you can see the truth of it and then you get help and cheer up or have a better moment and you think no actually everything is like this what a what a what an insane piece of of human fate that we are all designed to be just a lens and and you we we are a human lens and we look at the world and we, and whatever we see, we go, oh, it is like this. And if, if our lens is in a good mood, we go, oh, it is, what a great world it is. And if our lens is in a shit mood, this is the worst analogy ever. Yeah, it's like a lens, but in a shit mood. Do you see what I mean? Do you see, do you see what I'm struggling to articulate? What a, what a tragedy and what a beautiful thing at once. Ah, the nussness, the nussness of life. There it is. Isn't life amazing?